presenting this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Dr. Jane Burns wrote, How can an illness look like an infectious disease but not have a recoverable agent? Look like an immune-mediated vasculitis but not be easily treated with corticosteroids? And look like a benign, self-limited illness but be the leading cause of acquired heart disease in children? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jane Newberger. Dr. Newberger is a professor of pediatrics, Harvard Medical School, and is the Associate Chief for Academic Affairs, Department of Cardiology at the Children's Hospital Medical Center, Boston, Massachusetts. She is an Associate Editor of the journal Circulation and was the lead author of the American Heart Association Scientific Statement on the Diagnosis, Treatment, and Long-Term Management of Kawasaki Disease, a statement for health professionals. Today, we'll be discussing Kawasaki Disease. Hi, Dr. Newberger, and welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Hi, Bill. On February 2007, Dr. Jane Burns wrote, How can an illness look like an infectious disease but not have a recoverable agent, look like an immune-mediated vasculitis but not be easily treated with corticosteroids, and look like a benign, self-limited illness but be the leading cause of acquired heart disease in children? Dr. Newberger, are there any answers to these riddles? No, I think that Dr. Burns asked them recently because... There are no answers to the riddles. We are increasingly thinking that Kawasaki disease may not be caused by a single infectious agent. Where are we thinking with the etiology and epidemiology? Most people in the field, not everybody, but most people now think that one probably has an infectious trigger. It may be more than one agent that can be the infectious trigger, and that in a genetically susceptible host, meaning somebody who has a particular pathway of immune responses, one sees the disease that we recognize as Kawasaki disease. Does genetics play a role in this? We're sure that genetics does play a role. We know that from several vantage points. First of all, if you are Japanese, you have a much higher relative risk no matter where in the world you live. So there are big racial differences and ethnic differences. The second way we know it is that siblings have about a 10 times higher likelihood of developing Kawasaki disease than, let's say, the neighbors. The third way that we know it is if we look at the children in Japan now who are having Kawasaki disease, their parents are about twice as likely to have had Kawasaki disease as other adults similarly aged in the Japanese population. Is there a way of predicting from the children of parents who get Kawasaki's disease that they were at greater risk? In other words, is there any way you can sort of target certain families and say, you know, watch your child because we think even though we have 100 families where the parents had Kawasaki's disease, there are only 10 that are going to get a child with Kawasaki's disease. Can you figure out who that kid's going to be? Not yet. But I think that there is an international consortium on the genetics of Kawasaki disease with participants from Australia, England, parts of the United States, Amsterdam, and everybody is sending DNA to Singapore. A lot of genetic research is taking place at present to try to identify what genetic factors or immune polymorphisms might put you at risk for Kawasaki's. 
Going to a little bit more mundane, what are the current diagnostic criteria? That's a good question. So the current clinical criteria or classic criteria for Kawasaki disease involves having had fever for at least four days. So it's not five days anymore, but four days. And in expert hands, as little as three days, together with four out of five principal clinical criteria. And those include non-exudative conjunctivitis, so red bloodshot eyes, erythema of the oral mucosa, so a red throat and often a strawberry tongue, red lips. The third is a rash, which can look like anything except that it's never vesicular. The fourth is extremity changes, and these include erythema of the palms and soles, swelling of the hands and feet, and then two weeks later, one can have peeling that begins under the nail bed on the fingers first and toes next. So any of those three extremity findings would count toward the extremity criterion. The fifth clinical criterion, and it's the least common, is having one large lymph node in the cervical chain, measuring at least 1.5 centimeters. That's so fascinating for something with a presumed or potential infectious etiology that it's a unilateral enlarged lymph node. Does anybody have like even a guess as to why that might be? No, but I think a lot of people think that maybe that represents a portal of entry, And nobody really does know why it is, but it would speak toward an infectious agent of some kind. Is there a way of predicting from the clinical presentation who's going to get the vasculitis, the coronary artery aneurysms, the more severe disease? The best predictors are the children under six months of age tend to have particularly severe disease. It's almost a malignant disease in the three to four-month-old baby. Male gender So boys are about one and a half times more likely than girls to develop Kawasaki disease. But even when you adjust for that, boys are more likely to develop coronary aneurysms. Having a low platelet count at presentation, interestingly, even though Kawasaki patients generally have high platelet counts, having a low platelet count early in the illness suggests higher risk probably because activated platelets stick to an activated endothelium. Having a lower hematocrit at presentation or hemoglobin is a risk factor, higher white count, higher inflammatory markers like CRP, and perhaps one of the most important predictors is failure to respond to intravenous gamma globulin. So patients who get intravenous gamma globulin and still have persistent or recrudescent fever 36 hours after that infusion is complete are at higher risk. As long as you brought up the intravenous gamma globulin, obviously that's a mainstay of treatment. The diagnosis, once it's established, do you need coronary artery aneurysms to establish the diagnosis? It wasn't in your initial criteria there, the five points. Do you need coronary aneurysms? No, no. And in fact, you usually wouldn't have coronary aneurysms necessarily very early in the illness. Echocardiography comes into play in the diagnosis of Kawasaki disease when you are evaluating a suspected patient with incomplete Kawasaki disease. And that's what I was hoping you'd talk about. So for the pediatrician, this is obviously a needle in a haystack because so many children have fever, rash, and red eyes. But often one is put in a quandary for the child who doesn't have all the signs and symptoms of Kawasaki disease, but you suspect 
that they may have it nonetheless. And there, in the American Heart Association recommendations or statement, we have an algorithm for suspected incomplete Kawasaki disease. And what do you do with a child who's had fever for at least five days but only has two or three of those principal clinical criteria? Okay. What do you do? So the first thing one would do, if the picture is consistent with Kawasaki disease, you obtain a CRP and SED rate. And if the CRP is greater than 3 milligrams per deciliter or the SED rate is greater than 40 millimeters per hour, Hour. then one gets the next set. You look for supplemental lab criteria. And if you have at least three supplemental lab criteria that are positive, you can treat the patient. We recommend that. Those lab tests, those so-called supplemental criteria, include having an albumin less than 3 grams per deciliter, having anemia for age, having an elevated ALT, a platelet count of at least 450,000 after day 7 of illness, having a white count of at least 15,000, or having at least 10 white blood cells per high-power field with urine analysis. Again, our audience is primarily primary care physicians. You mentioned that a really astute clinician could make the diagnosis as early as day three or four of fever, but some of these laboratory values aren't going to be abnormal to day seven. What's the average duration of symptoms before this diagnosis is made? I think the answer to that in terms of at the average number of days in general is five to six days okay. around the country. However, it turns out that there are differences according to region, and some regions of the country and some places make the diagnosis on a later date. If you go to any pediatrician's office, mm-hmm. once they've seen a couple of cases, they always will make the diagnosis sooner than in the pediatrician's office where a case has never been diagnosed. And it's really a matter of thinking of the diagnosis. You said something earlier that I just want to correct, which is that the lab values are very abnormal early on. It's the coronary arteries may not show enlargement until you get closer to a week to 10 days into the illness. Okay, thank you. So, But yet the platelet count could be low or high, so you have to be careful with that one. Have to be careful. The platelet count initially, it's not till after a week of illness that it tends to be over 450. In many kids, it reaches 750,000, a million. That's a nonspecific sign of inflammation. Low platelet count early in the course of the illness, and when I say low, I mean relatively low. These are not kids who tend to come in with extremely low platelet counts, but relative to other Kawasaki patients, those patients are at higher risk for coronary aneurysms. If a child, when you assess the laboratory test, has both a low CRP and a low SED rate, Kawasaki disease becomes less likely. It's still important to follow that child daily, and if the fever continues for another two days or so, you may want to reevaluate all over again. Mm -hmm. Because one of the most important ways that primary care doctors miss this disease is that the features, the signs and symptoms of Kawasaki disease come in and go out. So on one day, the eyes may be red. The next time the child comes to the pediatrician's office, that symptom might be gone, but the rash might have come out. And so it's very important to have serial evaluations. Great point. 
I'd like to thank you very much for being my guest. I've been speaking with Dr. Jane Newberger from the Harvard Medical School, and we've been discussing Kawasaki disease. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and you've been listening to a special program on children's health on ReachMD, a channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I wish you good day and good health. You've been listening to Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals.